Well, good morning, Salem. And lots of joy this morning, lots to celebrate this morning. This is one of my favorite traditions of the year. And if you don't know, uh, I say, He is risen, and you say? Awesome. I love the, the boldness, you know, the unity uh, where we collectively say, gosh, this is who we are. This is what we believe is true. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is real, you know, um, and, and this is not oftentimes talked about. Um, and not to kind of maybe start on a strange note, but uh, Christianity is a house of cards apart from the resurrection. Right, because apart from, I mean, if you get forgiveness of sins and in the cross and, you know, in his death, but apart from that new life that is to follow, right, it's, it's, it's moot. There's nothing there. And so uh, this is a huge fundamental piece uh, of Christianity. And so this morning as we, as we talk about this, uh, my hope is that we get to tie the kind of the Old Testament story in with the New Testament story. And we're going to see how hope and joy uh, are really woven together and tied uh, inseparably in the person uh, and the work of Jesus. So uh, if I don't know you, uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. I'm super glad to have you. So I just extend my welcome to you as well as to everyone uh, who is online. So um, I want to sh- start with a, uh, with a story. Um, some of you might remember the story because I told it a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a little atypical of a story for an Easter Sunday, so just bear with me. So a couple of years ago, this is probably actually maybe four or five, six years ago, uh, I was driving, we were in a different state, and I was driving on the interstate, uh, and uh, there was a kind of a slow car in the right lane, and so I moved to the left lane uh, to pass, uh, but uh, I got stuck by another car who was waiting to pass, who was stuck by another car who was waiting to pass. And if you've, you've ever like seen this happen on the interstate, where these two cars are driving the same speed, which is, oh man, it's just, it's that little, that little itch in the beginning of the day, right? Uh, it's just like, all right, left lane is for passing. So here we are, we're, we're driving and we're, and we're waiting to go. This car comes speeding from behind and pulls up right next to me. He's impatient and he wants to get to wherever he's going. And so uh, after a couple minutes, he decides that this plan's not working. And so he goes right into the right lane and goes right up behind that other right car. And I thought to myself, that's not going to work either, <laughs> you know. Now I'm definitely not going to let you in, you know, kind of a thing. Like, that's just the sin in my heart, so I apologize, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, so here we are driving, right, and uh, the car in front of me, um, you know, and maybe it's the car in front of me, I don't remember, somehow space is created, and this car sees their opportunity, and they swerve in, like, so much that they, like, kind of peel, and, like, they have to swerve back in, and it's just super dangerous, Right? As maybe like, I mean, like from my you know, upper position in the Jeep, it's probably like maybe a foot in front, foot behind. I mean, it's just terrifying, you know, what's happening, what's kind of unfolding. And not only is it terrifying, it's frustrating, like anger begins to boil, right? So what happens is that, you know, the initial car kind of, that front car eventually gets out of the way, and then that car gets out of the way, and the car who was impatient just, boom, takes off. Well, it was in that moment um, that the car who was cut off uh, decided that there was injustice in the world and that it was their duty to bring justice and make this situation right. And so what they do uh, is that they then swerve into the left lane, you know, because if you, you know, don't learn from other people's mistakes, why not just repeat them yourself? So, and, they, and then they take off and just hit the gas pedal and, and speed off after this first car. And, uh, and he gets to the bumper, and he's going so fast. He's trying to get so close to this bumper that he's constantly hitting the brakes. So it's constantly red lights, red lights, red lights. And, and just happens for miles on end. And eventually he's doing it so much 
much that he's like swerving in and out of the lanes. Uh, and so I'm watching from a distance, by the way, not participating, um, <laughs> watching from a distance. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it is one of those things where it's like, this is scary because you don't know what's going to happen, right? It's this dangerous situation. Uh, and so um, it's, you know, as this guy is on the first guy's tail that the first guy, you know, uh, realizes that there's injustice in the world. And so it's his duty now to bring justice to the world. So what does he do? He rolls down his window, he grabs his big gulp, and just puts it out the window. And this is all he has to do. He just lets physics do the rest, right? <clears throat> it's gone. Right? The cup comes back and there's the soda explosion you know, on the, the front of the car behind him. And so he swerves back and you, know, you see the windshield wipers go, like he's correcting this so he can see. And then it's in this moment that his uh, sense of injustice has been re-aggressed. <laughs> uh, and he thinks, wow, this is bad. I need to do something about this. So here's what he does. This is crazy. This is humanity at its finest, okay? Um, Instead of driving to the front of that car and doing the same thing, he pulls up behind him and, and again, again, gets really, really close. He rolls down his window and he grabs his big gulp. <laughs> and then he, in attempt to bring justice into the world, tries to throw his big gulp <laughs> at 70 plus miles an hour into the wind at the car in front of him at which, you might expect, it made it about three inches, and it all comes straight back into his face through the window, all through the car, and I'm in the back with one hand clapping, you know, justice has been served, you know? Like, it was like justice has been, has been brought to rights in this moment, you know? Um, and here's the deal, like, you go, why? That's such an atypical story. This is Easter Sunday. Why are we talking about this? Um, and here's why. Because it's easy. We do not have to look far to, to understand and see that there's this, this deep intrinsic brokenness in the world. And how we deal with that brokenness and how we bring justice into this world apart from Jesus will always end up back on us. Right? And only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ does true and real justice enter into the world. And so Easter then is about celebrating not what's wrong with the world, but it's about celebrating who God is and what he's done to already bring justice. To bring this right relationship between God and man back into play where this is a possibility and a reality and it's lived out in our daily lives. So we're going to talk about right, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's so much joy in this because it's an audacious claim to think about life coming from death. But that's what happens. That's the story. That's the good news of the gospel. And in the midst of that, what we're going to find, what I hope, is that as we tie in these stories, right, because again, uh, you know, atypical story atypical sermon, because we're in this series in Jeremiah, we're looking at Jeremiah 31, and we're going to see how the old covenant and the new covenant play together, and it's only in the person and the work of Jesus that hope and joy become a reality in this life. As true justice enters into my own heart, and as true justice then enters into the world through me because of Christ but it's because of Jesus only. So here we go. We're going to jump into Jeremiah chapter 31. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can grab it and turn. Uh, in my Bible, it's page 915. <laughs> I don't know that that helps you. Um, 
<laughs> so um, we're in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verse 31. So it's super easy to remember if you want to go back and look at this later. Um, you want to go back and memorize it. Very easy. Jeremiah 31, 34, or 31, 31 through 34. And we're, it's, we're, there's so much in chapter 31. We can't, we can't go through much. We're just going to go through these few verses. Okay? Here's how it starts. It says, Behold, the days are coming, it declares the Lord. Now, just a quick pause. Um, if you are joining us for the first time or if you've been joining us for a while, uh, in this story of Jeremiah, God has been dealing with the idolatry of his people and the injustice of his people. And so what God has actually had to do is he's had to remove them from their setting and he actually sends them into exile. So it's in the midst of this turmoil and pain and hardship, this tremendous life difficulty, right? Just life is hard type of a moment. And what God says is that there's something still to come. And I love that this is not indefinite, right? It doesn't just say, like, gosh, guys, I started the creation, I set it into works, and now all of a sudden it's just doing whatever it wants and I have no control. It's not like he's, he's just seeing it unfold, right? No, he says the days. So this is something very specific and intentional that God is laying out in front of us to say, I know what's coming next because I wrote the story. And so he's speaking hope into a group of people who are tremendously hurt and in just tremendously pained. And he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, that's God, Yahweh, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the hand of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, so uh, there's some, some interesting words in here, especially like that word covenant. So uh, I want us just to make sure we understand what's happening, because um, I realize that probably not all of our knowledge really lines up together. So here's, here's the reality. We have a book, and this book is called The Bible. Okay, God's Word, right? Um, this is a collection of 66 different books, letters, narratives, poetry, prophecy, uh, all sorts of different things, right? Um, and it's broken into two main parts. The, the old part, the larger section is called the Old Covenant, and then there's another piece called the New Covenant, right, that comes after. It's the kind of the shorter piece. And covenant um, is, is a word um, that simply identifies and distinguishes the type of relationship that exists between two people or two groups of people. And it oftentimes comes out, at least symbolically, uh, uh, figuratively, in, in the form of marriage here in, in Scripture. Because what God says is it's like you and I, me and my people, are designed for this marriage covenant, right? We are to be faithful to each other, loving and serving and working for the benefit of the good of the other. That's the way that the covenant is designed, okay? Does that make sense? So there's this covenant. And at the core of that covenant, though, is the reality that God has a heart for his people, right? It's all about relationships. So even though this is 66 different books uh, in two parts, it's one story, it's one story from beginning to end about who God is and what he's doing in the world as he interacts with his creation, and at the center of that is people, right? Especially in the injustice, the brokenness, uh, the, the, just the, the grossness that is in the human heart, 
right? That's what he's seeking to restore, right? That's what he ultimately wants to enter in. And in these covenants, as we're going to look here in a second, there's this line that's going to keep coming up, and it's going to say this. It says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And that's important because in today's world, it's easy for people who maybe don't know Jesus or even for people who do know Jesus, it's easy for us to, to pull and try to rope God into our plans and to say, God, this is, this is why you exist because here's the story that I'm writing, here's my list of to-dos, now go do them. And it reverses that. God says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. How this works is that I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is my story in the way that I'm writing it, and I am the main character in the story, and you guys are these, these small sub-characters right, in the story that God is ultimately writing. And so as the story begins, if you remember, so there's this picture of the tree, right? The story begins with the, in the Old Testament with the Garden of Eden. And so as Adam and Eve are brought into the world, right, they have a choice. There's this covenant that God makes with them. He says, if you, if you don't eat of this tree, um, then things will be good, right? And, and the way that it was designed is that everything is in right working order. Uh, nothing is out of sync. There's no rub. There's no conflict. There's no chaos. There's no confusion, right? The entire cosmos is, is perfect which we don't even have a category for. It's like hard to imagine what that would have looked like or felt like, right? But that's the way it was, and it was based on whether or not you, it will, that will continue to exist if you don't eat the fruit of the tree. Well, what happens is they eat the fruit of the tree, and what happens is that there's this conflict that enters into the world. The peace, the shalom of God, the, the, the perfection of the cosmos is thrown into chaos and into confusion as the human heart kind of does this somersault, and it flips, and we are designed to be selfless, but instead we become selfish, right? This is the first major shift that happens in the story. We're designed to be selfless, but we become selfish. And so for each of us, even right now in this space, in this moment, each of us, myself including, right, it's this reality. There's a predetermining factor that if I have to choose between myself and other people, the person that I want to choose is me. And the plan that I want to choose, the story that is being written, is my story, not somebody else's story, especially not God's, right? And this is the brokenness of the world, right? And so out of that, because we have this, this self-love, right, um, idolatry enters into the space of humanity. It creates this new environment where God is no longer on the throne, and we as humans place whatever it is that we so long for on the throne, and we love that more than we love God. And because of that, I, uh, this injustice enters into the world because we, as humans, are so in love with the story that we would long to create and the story that we want to write that we will actually end up treating other people however we want in order to get what we want. Do you get that? So there's idolatry and there's this injustice in the world, right? And so what we're going to find is that there's this brokenness that exists after the Garden of Eden. That first covenant was based solely on works, and we failed. It didn't work. It's, it was not for the long haul. It was a very short-lived covenant, and we failed. And so there's this brokenness. Here's the tension that exists post that fall, okay? And I'll tell you in a, in a form of a story. So Eden, my daughter right now, is three and a half going on four, and, uh, and she has this game that she loves to play with me right now. And it's super 
I'm going to say cute. It's super cute, okay? Um, and here's what happens. She runs to me. Uh, she jumps in my lap, and she wraps me in a big hug, and then she begs me in there with all of her cuteness. She says, Dada, trap me. And so what she means is give me a hug, like wrap me up and don't let me go. So she says, trap me. I'm like, okay, right? So then I do this, and I wrap her in this bear hug, and it's beautiful for one millisecond when she says, now let me go. Okay, right? Now trap me. Now let me go. I mean, and she does this back, I mean, over and over. She would do it for an hour. And I last about a minute. I'm like, I'm done. This game's, this game's old. <laughs> uh, here's, here's, what, here's what's happening in this moment. I think there's, there's something much deeper and much more fundamentally true that she doesn't realize she's doing and that's helpful for us to learn from, that we as hum- humans, as a result of the fall, we have this deep and overwhelming desire to be hugged and embraced and trapped by our Heavenly Father. While at the exact same time, as soon as that happens, we long for our freedom. And it's back and forth. And this is how we exist as humans. Love me. No, don't love me. Leave me alone. Now love me. Right? And we do this over and over and over again. And so that's the tension. And so what God says is, gosh, like this game with humanity is getting old. <laughs> so I don't want to play that game anymore. So he says, gosh, like I want people who are in right relationship with me. I want to do something different, something unique, something new that's actually going to create transformation in your life. And so what he does is he establishes this set of follow-up covenants. And here's the key. They are different from the Eden covenant because the Eden covenant was built on works. These other covenants are built on something different. They're built on promise. They're built on God himself. They say, these promises hinge on me. And if at any point in your life or in the lives of all of those in humanity, if I fail to fulfill on these promises, then I'm not God. That's what he says, right? And so if we come back to our clear board, all right, so what we find is that kind of that post-Eden, right? There's that, that covenant of works, but we fail, and there's this brokenness. And so as God moves this story forward, he establishes these follow-up covenants. The first one, the first promise, is with a guy named Abraham, or Abram, and then he becomes Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham his, his, is really his love and his commitment to him as a person and to his family. Because his promise is this. He says, Abraham, through you, I will make you a great nation. In fact, you are going to exceed the number of sand uh, on the seashore. And you're like, wow, that's a ton of people. And that's the promise. God says to Abraham, I will make a great nation. So it's his commitment to people, to persons, and to family. Okay? But then we enter in, and you get to this next guy, and it's Moses, right? And whenever I think of Moses, I think of, you know, big beard and maybe floppy hair. I don't know what he looks like. Apparently, Abraham was bald. Um, he had nothing there. So, so you've got Moses. And Moses is unique because when God brings his people out of Egypt in this, this, this excursion called the Exodus, he takes them to this mountain, and what does he do? He gives them these, these 
Ten Commandments, and he writes them, inscribes them uh, on these stone tablets. And so this is God's concern, not just for the people and for the family, it's God's concern and his promise for the nation. If you want to follow me, and if you want your life to look like what it was like before the squiggly line, you know, which is maybe a little overly reductionistic or simplistic, but he says, if you want that, then these are the things you have to live by. These are the things that you'll have to do right? And so that's significant, and we'll come back to those, right? And then there's this, this final kind of covenant, and it's with this guy named David, and David is a king, so he's got a crown. And, and for him, what this is, is that it's God's promise, so he's got to the people and to the family, to the nation and their rule, and this is to the dynasty. It's God's promise to this multiplication and how his people are going to continue to grow over the years and years and years for centuries and millennia. That's what this promise represents. It's beautiful. But here's what's interesting about this, right, is that this story, the Old Testament, is coming to an end, right? It's coming to an end. And what has been the the theme, you know, this entire time, what's been the theme of God's people is that they struggle massively with idolatry and and injustice, right? They're all about themselves. Even though God exists and they love him, there's this massive core problem. And so there's this deep desire for God to show up or this deep need for God to show up and do a work in his people to change things. And that's where Jeremiah comes in, because Jeremiah is at the end of the story, right? Jeremiah is at the end of the story, and what Jeremiah has been doing throughout this, sorry, I should make that more clear, this is just kind of meant to bracket that, look like idery. So here's the deal, Jeremiah enters into this story, um, and what he's doing is that for the most of the book, he's dealing with the idolatry and the injustice of God's people, but there's this this glimpse in 31, which is, guys, this is such a fascinating, this is such a fascinating piece because Jeremiah offers a glimpse into the Old Testament that is super rare. It's one of the deepest insights into the entire Old Testament. And in Jeremiah 31, specifically, what happens is that he says, this new covenant that I'm going to do is somewhere over here. It's an indetermined time. It's coming, but it's going to cause real life transformation in a way that this never could. He says, it's not like these, because these were written on a tablet, right? This is all external. You can't do this on your own, right? Which, by the way, there are 10 commandments listed on these tablets, and in the Old Testament, it goes and grows to over 500 different commandments. So if you can remember all 500, kudos to you. I can barely remember all 10, And I'm guessing that for most people in this room, if we took a quiz, we probably wouldn't be able to remember all 10. This is like when when your significant other asks you to go to the grocery store. And they say, would you pick up these items and say it's 10 things? So when Nikki says, will you go? And I'm like, sure. And then she tells me, all 10. And I say, I got it. She goes, you should write them down. I say, nah, I got it. And then I go to the store, and I remember six of them. And then I make the phone call of shame. (laughs) And I'm like, honey, I love you. You're amazing. Hey, how's Eden doing? By the way, what are those other four? And you just like try to sweep it under the rug, right? Right? How can you do these if you don't even remember them? And if we can't do 10, let alone 500, that's only part of the problem because here's the reality, right? Is that just because we know these doesn't mean that we can do them. 
right? Like when I was little growing up and, and mom would ask me to do the dishes, which by the way, that's the one chore I hate more than anything else is doing dishes. And it's because you get it like in the grime and the gross, it was, okay? I hated it, hated it. Um, and it's like if mom said, do the dishes, we do the dishes, or dad said, do the dishes for mom, let's serve her. Selfless side of me, pre-eating, if that were the case, I would say, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Selfish side of me says, ask my brother Ryan. Go tell him to do it, because I hate it. I don't want it, right? And that's just honor your father and mother. What about love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and soul? Can you do that all of the time? You see, just because we know them doesn't mean we can even do it. And so what God says in Jeremiah 31 is he says, this is no longer going to work. The rules themselves and these life guidelines are really good, but the problem is where they're written, And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it on the human heart. And that's the transformation. It's not about something that's external. It's about something that he's going to do inside of each human being. Check this out in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here's this key line. Remember, and I, it's then, when it's written inside of them, guess what that result will finally look like? I will be your God and you will be my people. And you say, yes, please. I would much rather have that than the other. I want this new covenant. I want this life transformation type of a thing, right? Put it on my heart. Take what was on those tablets and put it right in here. That sounds great way better. And he says, by the way, here's the result of that. Look at verse 34. He says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They shall all know me. You see, here's the second massive shift. This is how God is promising to make the ship right. Because at the very beginning, in Eden, we were designed to be selfless and we became selfish. Here's how he flips that. Because throughout the whole Old Testament, he says, in order to have a relationship with God, what do you need? You need to talk to a prophet or a priest. You have to do it through somebody else. And what he says is, I'm promising you a time when not Someone else is going to have, they're not going to have to teach you. You don't have to listen to me teach because you can know Jesus yourself. That's the beauty of this message. That's the joy of this, what God is promising. He says, from the least of these to the greatest, it's an age, every age, right? Every socioeconomic status, every color of skin, no matter your story, whether there's sin and guilt and shame and grossness, he says, from the least of people, from the very bottom to the very top, everybody can have a relationship with me. And it's powerful, it's beautiful. This is the promise that, that is being lived or given to us through uh, Jeremiah 31. It's revolutionary. And at the core of this covenant is this thing called the forgiveness of sins, right? We, should, we talk about that a lot, but we should talk about it like every time, right? Look what it says. It says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more. That means it's permanent. By the way, this isn't like, like, can, like some of you are asking, can God actually forget? 
No. Okay, that's not within his character. That's not what he's saying. It's not like Harry Potter where they like wave a wand and they take their memories out. Right? That's not what happens here with God, right? What God is saying is it's not that I'm forgetting, it's what I'm doing is I say I, I'm, I'm going past it, I will never bring it up again, and I will never use it against you. We don't have a category for this type of forgiveness, do we? Because in our lives, it's so easy for you and me. Like someone comes to you and, they, and they've wronged you in some way, shape, or form. And they come to you and they're like, hey, I'm sorry. And you're like, hey, it's okay, I forgive you. And then two days later, they do something else. What stirs inside of you? Do you remember that one time, two days ago? Like it stirs. Like, we don't have a category for this. This is how God operates, so it's so hard for us to wrestle. Here's my question. What if that was actually true and that was what governed your life? What if you lived your life in such a way that you understood that God would never, ever bring up your sin again or use it against you? He's not sitting up there going, I can't believe they did that. Like, do you remember that one time? It's not the way it works. Here's my other question. What if there was a group of people around you who believed the same thing and practiced forgiveness in the same way? What would that look like? Here's what it's supposed to look like, the church. That's what we're supposed to be, this beautiful picture of a community who's coming back into the garden and living with our best to understand and to live out the forgiveness that we have in Christ, right? The world would look a little bit differently, wouldn't it? Like how you wake up and even just do breakfast would look differently if you understood forgiveness that way. How you treat your spouse, your significant other, how you treat friends, how you treat your teachers, how you treat your coworkers. How you treat that kid in sixth grade who, when you try to help them with their homework, stabs you with a lead pencil. That happened to me. Still there. Right there. I'm not sure if that's safe. Still there. Right? Forgiveness is so important, right? And so this text tells us of a time. It points to this new covenant. It says this is going to be the new reality. And there's, it's just filled with hope. It's filled with a tremendous amount of hope. So there's this tension, obviously, for the people, right? There's this tension for the people because they're over here and there's this uncertainty about the future, but what they know is that God is going to show up and work on their behalf. And so what do they have? This tremendous hope that this doesn't revolve around me. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do or what I can accomplish. It's only about what God can accomplish because that's the promise. It hinges on him to fulfill. And this is what brings us to the New Testament, because this is how these things work together, right? As we come over here, we have joy. Because it's not just hope. There's joy that comes as we get to experience what God accomplished or what Jesus accomplished for us in his body, in his life, death, and resurrection. There's this tremendous amount of joy. Um, if you were here for, with us at our Good Friday service, you'll remember this, but for those of you who weren't here, um, I, I just wanted to, to briefly run through this because this is kind of, is going to be a symbol for what happened on the cross for us. Um, and, and if you know, like, here's the story, right? As Jesus goes up on the cross, as Jesus is in that space and as he, uh, you know, is being punished for our sin, what happens is that for us, for those who had placed their faith in Christ, right, that all of our sin and guilt and shame gets put up 
in Jesus up on that cross. And as he is, you know, as he dies, right, what happens then is that all of the goodness, all of the righteousness that Jesus is, is accredited to us. And it's what we might call the great exchange. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's literally the most best thing you could ever talk about in this life. And as Jesus, the night before he's betrayed and, 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 and arrested, he chose to go to this place called Garden of Gethsemane, right? So, um, and Gethsemane in Hebrew comes from two words, gat shmanim. Uh, it means press of oils. So Jesus, volitionally, on his last night of a, as a free man, went and sat next to an olive press, Okay? Now, here's how an olive press works, right? So, they have these baskets, right? And the olives would have been ground into this paste, and then they pack this thing with, with olives. And then they would put it over a hole in the ground, and then they would attach these different massive heavy stone weights to this long arm or boom, right? And what it does is that as they set it down, that weight begins to compress the olive, and the oil begins to come out the bottom, and they do it in a sequence of three. There's always three pressings. And so by the time you get, these are actually heavy, I'm not pretending, okay? By the time you get to the third and final pressing, every single drop of oil has been expended from those olives. And it goes to be this, this, this huge symbol for Jesus and for us, that as Jesus would have bore the weight of sin on the cross, that he would exhaust every single drop or ounce of God's wrath on our sin until there's nothing left in it. It's all gone. It's full, it's complete, and it's permanent. God's wrath is empty, and it can never be used against you for those of you who put your faith in Christ. This is a beautiful picture of forgiveness of sins. And see, I think for many of us, like you think about like, again, washing dishes, right? So you wash a cup and then you fill it with water and you kind of stir it around and you dump out that cup. And for all practical purposes, that cup is now empty. But the reality is, is that there's still moisture that clings to the edge of that cup. And I think that for many of us, this is how we think about God's forgiveness. The cup is empty. But in reality, it's not, because God's wrath still exists on me, and it takes taking a towel and cleaning out that cup and drying it off completely until there's not a single ounce of water left that we begin to realize that God's wrath is completely gone, and my sin is completely covered, never to be used against me by God. That's the beauty of this message but it doesn't, doesn't end there, right? The story continues with his resurrection. Take a, take a look at this picture. This is a, a, a kind of representation of what a tomb would have looked like back in, in Jesus' day. You can kind of see the hole in the wall there. The, there's this entrance into uh, the tomb, and there's the kind of the wall that's been shaved down, and there's this kind of like crevice at the bottom, and here's why. Uh, because they had taken this massive stone circle that's shaved kind of on both sides, uh, and they would have put it in that crevice. Uh, once they put the body into the tomb, what they do is they remove this like, kind of little bottom piece, and that stone would have naturally rolled down because it's built on an incline, and so it would have rolled down and locked in place like a first century vault. There's no getting out of this. 
no getting out of this. And yet the story is, is that after three days, Jesus came out of this space, fully dead before, fully alive. Forgiveness of sins does you no good if there's nothing to enjoy it later. Right? That's the resurrection. That's the joy of the resurrection, that there's life that comes after the crucifixion. Right, And it's this eternal hope, but it's also this very present hope that happens for us. I want to read, just read through this passage. It's very, um, very, very easy, but here's what it is. First Peter. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, right? That's that whole idea of regeneration, uh, coming to know Christ. There's the second birth that actually happens, and it's to a living hope. It's not a past hope. It's not a, like a false hope. It's this very present and active, continuous hope that happens right now. Like, this is what we can live in. There's this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which, by the way, if you don't know, here's this cool like, thing. Like, you get an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which means that it's death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof, which is pretty awesome, right? It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Does that sound familiar? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, which is important for us because we haven't, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, in there, there's this combination between hope and joy. There's this living hope that we get to experience, and we have this inexpressible joy, right, that words cannot compute, inexpressible joy. And it's this beautiful portrait of what's available to us for those who have our faith in Christ. It's just an amazing, amazing story. Guys, the, the world is full of angry drivers. It's, it's full of... Um, more terrible things, murder, racism, injustice, but it's only in the person and the works of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection that we find that hope and joy become inseparable and very real in the midst of trying and difficult life. And that's my hope for you. That's my prayer for you, that wherever you're at and whoever you are, whatever hope that you need, whatever joy that you need in your life, that you'd be able to find it, and not in anything other than Jesus. Super significant. Uh, and I'll end with this. Um, uh, how many of you guys have heard of Wordle? Great, more people. First service, zero. Last service, about 50%, so that's good. Um, Wordle, don't, by the way, don't do it because it's addicting. Um, Wordle is like a, it's a, it's like six guesses. You have six guesses to guess one five-letter word. And when you guess a word, it will tell you if you have a letter in the right spot or a letter in the wrong spot. And so uh, Eden and I have this addiction. Um, and so if our typical rhythm is that once she's up and had breakfast, we do Wordle together before I go to work. Well, when I forget or when we don't have time, she will call me, uh, or Nikki will call me rather, and Eden will say, Dada, don't forget. We do Wordle when you get home. 
okay? Uh, and, and we just guess, and you, you try to figure out that word before six guesses is up. Here's why I say that, because I think that for many, many people, what we do is we go through life and we're just guessing. We're just typing things in, trying to figure out what will bring me hope and joy, right? And yet every time it always fails, right? And if it lasts for a moment, it's fading, it's done, and it's gone, right? And so I want to give you this opportunity. Look at this picture. This is, this is incredible. From the outside is the left, the left picture. And I think for many people, we stand on the outside. For those who don't know Christ, they go, gosh, is it true or real that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Like that's something I have to wrestle with personally. Did he actually do that? Which by the way, many Christians live their life from outside of the tomb because it's conceptual, but we're not, we're not trying to experience it. The picture on the right is a picture from inside the tomb. And it shows that you and I because we've been united with Christ in his death, are also raised. And we become partakers of this same life. By the way, from the outside, what do you see? Darkness. From the inside, what do you see? Life, beauty, hope, and joy.